But if you want to pull out your sermon insert now, I should say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have a cool logo of a church on there being done by our very own Lauren Ebel, putting these graphics together. Um, today we are looking at Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Um, I just want to make a couple of introductory announcements before we get into the text. The first is that the, the book of Revelation opens with these words. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I'm telling you that because, as with every sermon, we have a scripture reading before the sermon time, but it is a little unique today in that it is going to be about a 12-minute, maybe somewhere between 12 and 15-minute scripture reading. We're going to read the entirety of Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3. But we're doing so because we believe this verse. There is a special blessing that comes with reading the words of the book of Revelation. And a blessing that comes to those who hear it and who keep what is written. This is also not going to be a normal sermon. As much as I want to dig into all the details and, and focus on each church one at a time, we don't have time to do that. We're going to read the entirety of Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches, and then I'm going to make some very high-level application to our lives. The second thing I want you to note about these seven churches is exactly that. There are seven the book of Revelation is filled with images and symbols and numbers, which mean something. The number seven is very important. But first we should know that these seven churches are actual churches in the first century with actual people in them. I'm saying that because the book of Revelation and the contents of the book of Revelation has to have immediate application and purpose for them in the first century, because it's written to them. What I'm getting at is certain um, interpreters, commentators today that have wild theories about Revelation where almost the entirety of the book is still yet future from our vantage point. That's not where we stand. We believe the book of Revelation is for those churches in the first century, and it's detailing the events of human history that we've seen, that they saw, that we will see. There are aspects of Revelation that are yet future, certainly. But so much of the book is actually for us. It's about our world, about our history. The number of seven, although yes, these seven churches are actual churches in the first century with real people, and the, the book of Revelation is written to them and has application for them, the number seven does seem to encapsulate the universal church. What we mean by that, we mean like all of the church, throughout all of history and all time. Meaning the lessons we can glean from Revelation 2 and 3 are for us. Even though the book of Revelation is written to seven churches in the first century, it does detail and depict all of history. So there's tons of things for us in this book. Lastly to note is, like I mentioned, the importance of the number seven. It will become increasingly clear to you as we study this book. The seven churches are the first, what we could call, cycle of seven. You're going to read these seven churches. We're going to see seven seals. We're going to see seven trumpets. We're going to see seven bowls of wrath. We're going to see seven over and over again. 
It's a fancy way and literary way of describing truth called recapitulation. It's the author of Hebrews, John, retelling the same period of time from a different vantage point. Roger got into this a little bit last week. This is the first cycle of seven. Seven churches, first century, real people written to them, but seven meaning it encapsulates and includes all of us and is detailing for us realities of all of history. And we're going to see these cycles of seven come back up in later parts of Revelation. Okay? Now, if I could have my seven scripture readers come join me up front. Christina, you're starting it off church one, two, three. Then we got churches four, five, six, and seven over here. We're going to pass the mic down the line. Tim, would you give that to, to Christina? She's going to start us in just a moment. The last thing I want to say before we start our scripture reading is that all of us should encounter the contents of Revelation 2 and 3 and be affected. Those of us who, who encounter the words of Revelation 2 and 3 and walk away kind of aloof, eh, it's all right, likely either spiritually prideful or just aloof to the wonderful truths in chapter 2 and 3. There's something for each of us in here. There's something for a new city in here. And so lean forward with expectation. This is a part of our worship. We're continuing to worship the Lord as we hear the scriptures read. What we'll do this morning is I want you to have freedom to respond how you need to. If you need to get up and go to the back and, 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 and shout and clap for the Lord. If you need to kneel, go for it. If you want to stand up, sit, do whatever you've got to do. Um, our custom at New City is to stand for the reading of God's word, but that's a 15-minute standing. So we won't do that today, but what we will do is you can stay seated for the reading of the first six churches, and then we'll all stand for the reading of the last church, the church to Laodicea, okay? So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up, follow along, or open up your sermon insert. I did get the entire text in there, so all seven churches are there. Follow along as we read God's word. In Ephesus, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be fearful unto death, sorry, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast when you have hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your words, your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you please stand? And to the church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, scripture readers. We're jumping right in. I want you to see one clear truth. This morning... I want us as a body to resist our own temptation to not hear by seeing. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. This repeated refrain is there because we have a temptation to not hear. We have a temptation to shut up our ears to the things of Christ. I want us to resist the temptation to not hear. And we do so by sight, by seeing things in the text this morning. I told you this isn't a normal sermon. The three things I want you to see are just very high-level applications for us. We're not going to get deep into it. So I want us to resist our temptation to not hear by seeing, first, the usefulness of encouragement. Secondly, the severity of compromising with the world. 
And third and finally, very briefly, as we go to the table, I want us to see the beauty of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We combat our failure to hear by seeing clearly. So the first thing I want us to see is the usefulness of encouragement. You may have noticed this. As the reading was taking place, the risen Lord took time in each of these seven letters to encourage the church, with the exception of Laodicea. Roger's church at the end there. They were a real mess. They don't get any encouraging words. But the other six all have specific encouragement given to them prior to the rebuke. And some of those rebukes are extreme because the sins are heinous. Some of the sins of these churches is intense. And the warning is likewise intense. Turn. Be warned. But the Lord takes time to encourage each of these churches with specificity. And it's not just the seven churches of Revelation. It's in the New Testament more broadly. You probably, if you've been journeying through the Bible in a year or spending time in your your own uh, daily life reading the Scriptures, you kind of just shut off to the opening chapter or the opening half chapter, right? Paul the Apostle to the church in such and such, grace and peace, and yeah, da-da-da-da, encouragement, you're doing great, blah-blah-blah, boring. Get to the other stuff. But that is important biblical text. That the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, John, take time in their letters to identify marks of God's grace in the life of other people, and they tell them. It is what we would call encouragement. The the letter of Paul to the Corinthians is one of my favorites. You know the, the church in Corinth, they were messed up. They got most things wrong. And yet, a decent chunk of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians is specific encouragement from the apostle to the church. He was able to see and identify aspects of God at work in their life, and he named it. He told them. Then he rebuked them and corrected them for chapters 2 through 16. But he took time, pointed time, to identify evidences of grace in the lives of God's people. Definition of encouragement might prove helpful here. I've just recently found the best one that I've come across. It was um, a couple weeks ago, Roger mentioned it, we, uh, Roger and I went to a conference called the Evangelical Theological Society. It was basically a bunch of Bible nerds getting together to do Bible nerdlery. And um, Roger and I were, were at home. It was a safe place for us. We really enjoyed it, nerding out. But one of the breakout sessions was Dane Ortland. You may know Dane Ortland, who wrote the, the, the book Gentle and Lowly. We've quoted that a lot. He wrote a follow-up on applying the, the, the truths of Gentle and Lowly called Deeper. He, in his breakout session, was highlighting encouragement, the biblical command, privilege, but responsibility of encouraging one another. So I jotted down notes, knowing that I was going to go here with Revelation 2 and 3. Dr. Dane Ortland, uh, he says this, and I can only hope this is going to be in a forthcoming book on encouragement. He defines encouragement this way. Encouragement is that subset of Christian love that identifies specific marks of God's presence in the life of another Christian with words to that Christian without any sarcasm or joking. Let me say that again, because I, I think this is a wonderful definition. Encouragement is that subset of Christian love. So from, from here on, we're talking about in the household of God encouragement. 
We're not talking about nice shoes to your neighbor or your coworker. I really love what you did with your hair. We're talking about biblical encouragement to one another. Encouragement is that subset of Christian love that identifies specific marks of God's presence in the life of another Christian with words to that Christian without any sarcasm or joking. We're not talking about flattery. Jesus does not flatter these churches. Proverbs 26, 28 warns against the wickedness of flattery. Why? Well, because the parallel statement in Proverbs 26, 28 is that flattery is a lie. We don't flatter. We're not making stuff up. We're not talking about generalities. And I want to encourage you with this general thing. Encouragement, biblically speaking, is specific. It's identifying evidences of grace in someone's life, seeing it and telling it to them. And I'd add with Dr. Ortland's words, without sarcasm or joking. So the question for us, the, the lesson for us to learn is simply, do we see the value of this? The biblical pattern that becomes increasingly clear as you read your Bible. Encouragement is important. Do we not only have ears to hear these words, but do we have eyes to see God at work in the life of our fellow Christians? Do we have eyes to identify things that, that God is doing in their lives and tell them, to encourage them? Let me just give you a quick survey of some Bible verses. Jot these down. You can read them later if you have time. Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think this is the only time in Scripture where we have an encouragement to crush one another in a competition of showing honor to one another. Compete with your neighbor. Outdo them in showing honor to one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The words of Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 13 come to mind. This is an important passage for our community group ministry. The author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Your encouragement keeps other people's hearts soft. Your lack of encouragement to others could lead to them becoming hardened in their heart. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. Lastly, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as, uh, such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion, don't miss this last phrase, that it may give grace to those who hear. Your words to a fellow Christian give grace grace. Give life. The giving and the receiving of faith-building, life-sustaining words, brothers and sisters of New City, is how we persevere. So now, knowing that, how important is encouragement? Our words can and our words should give life to those around us. Because our words identify specific marks of God's grace in people's life, and we tell them. 
So brothers and sisters of New City, my, my application is pretty easy for us. Let us look. Let us have eyes to see. Let's look for ways in one another's life that you see God at work. Jesus is being exalted there. And let's use our words to tell one another those things. Fight the fear of possibly being awkward. Fight the, the fear of, of possibly building pride in their life. Fight against laziness from failing to, to find those marks in one another's life. Fight against those things. Fight against your busy schedule. Your constant go, 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 so that you have no time to stop and give encouragement. You have no time to stop and receive encouragement. Get those out of the way. Let us encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let us encourage one another. The second thing I want us to see, and by seeing I think we will resist our temptation to not hear, is the severity of compromising with the world. It's impossible to get through these two chapters without seeing that most of them are compromising. Most of them are basically kind of like, Jesus, yeah, but also one, wor- one, one foot in the world. Let's just be both. They're compromising. Of these seven churches, five of them receive very strong rebuke. Very strong rebuke. But before we get into the rebuke and see if there's anything in the rebukes for us, I do want us to note something. In each of these rebukes, the risen Lord Jesus is giving an opportunity to come back to him. The warnings themselves are gracious. Beware, don't go that way. But in the warnings, there is a pathway to life. It's called repentance. Come back to, to Jesus. If any of these things that I'm about to say apply to you, the offer is also to you. Come back to Jesus. Turn from those ways and come back to him, the risen Lord Jesus, with all of these images, the the first and the last, the one with the sharp two-edged sword, the eyes with flame of fire. He sees everything. He's inviting you to come. Come back. Repent. But, nevertheless, these rebukes are cautionary, and they're strong. Because in each of these churches, especially the ones that get this strong rebuke, there is that dreaded phrase, If you do not, I will come. And that's not Jesus coming as the lamb in grace. That is coming in judgment. If you do not repent, watch out. That's strong. That's scary words for me to even say. And I know it's probably unsettling for you. Revelation 2.5. 216, 3, 3, all contain these. If you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief. Take you. The cautionary, the cautionary warning to these churches is that if they stay in their compromised state with the world, the risen Lord Jesus will come and take away their church status. Done. This is serious, weighty. Do not compromise with the world. Now, there's a few ways, or we could say a few sins in particular, that are highlighted. Sexual immorality, idolatry, those are the two I'm going to talk about. But if there were a third one, and I had five more minutes, I would add another sin that becomes explicitly clear in Laodicea, and that is prosperity. 
money wrecks the church in Laodicea. This neutral thing, prosperity, pleasure, peace, money, ruins these Christians. Yes, neutral. Yes, I'm not against money and prosperity. As a matter of fact, we, we, we long for it. But we, we want money so that we can be stewards of it for God's glory and for one another's good. But I don't want us to miss that, that prosperity ruined one of the seven churches. Comfort destroyed Laodicea. I don't know about you, but I think we are a church. We are a, in the West, very comfortable, prosperous. Be careful. But the other two main sins, sexual morality and idolatry that I mentioned, let's first start with sexual morality. We're just talking about the biblical phrase, meaning um, any and all ways we partake in sexual activities or imaginations that are outside the biblical pattern of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Okay, So all things involved in that. With these seven churches, the sexual immorality appears throughout the letters. You probably heard that phrase over and over again, sexual morality. You've, you're eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual morality. That's the teaching of Balaam. You have Jezebel in Thyatira. She's uh, leading and seducing servants to practice sexual immorality with her. We're not exactly sure if it, her name is, is actually Jezebel or if it's a, a woman, but they're calling her Jezebel to, to invoke the image of First and Second Kings, where we have Jezebel back there, who is also rather wicked. But nevertheless, committing adultery, practicing sexual morality, laying with her. These phrases are over and over again in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, with us, the warning is still the same, but it might look a little different for us. To my knowledge, praise the Lord, I don't think we have any... Jezebel types in the membership of New City, purposefully and willfully leading one another to, to commit adultery. But the warning to flee sexual immorality is still needed greatly. The temptation to sexual immorality just looks like this. High school students, college students, do what you want with your body with whomever you wish. I just highlighted high school and college because it's especially prevalent there, but that is to all of us. Our culture, our world is saying, you do you. Live with whoever you want. Sleep with whoever you want. It's just mutual pleasure. Let's go. That is Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea. That is wickedness. Flee. If you do not, I will come. Or, and this is what I told first service, I'm going to step on toes in mine included. If you're listening to this, you can't see me stepping on my own toe. But this warning against sexual immorality applies greatly in the realm of our media intake. Jesus made it abundantly clear that sexual immorality or, or the committing of adultery was not just a physical act, but an act of the heart. Lust within our hearts. This sexual immorality is, is the sexually perverse things in our media today, whether it's TV or, or the movies we're watching, advertisements, or all the way down the spectrum to explicit pornography. These warnings are for us. Repent. If you do not. Now, in my heart, my, my own experience with these things the temptation of sexual immorality is a little more refined. 
It's watching movies and television that you know breaks the heart of Christ. But the cast is amazing. Oh, the writing, the, oh, the script, it is superb. I have, I, I got, I, I've got to. Everybody in the world's watching this. I'm resisting the urge to, to, to name shows. Game of Thrones. Anything on HBO, probably. I mean, not all of them. There's some. Uh, I forgot to tell First Service this. IMDb is an app. You can look by show and movie to a parent's guide where they break down these things for you. you. The work's done if you just want to put the research in on whether or not something should be viewed by your eyes and heart. Sorry, back to the text. The cast is superb. You'll never believe who they got to play this or that. My personal favorite is all my coworkers are watching it, so you know, I just I just want to view it as well for an open door for the gospel. So it's so stupid. Here's the open door to the gospel. That sounds great and fancy, and I know the whole world's watching it and it has set every record, but I cannot watch that because I don't want that in my heart. I want to see just my wife, my husband. I want to honor Jesus with what I let come in these windows to my soul. Flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. This is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's only used three times. This is the will of God for your life. Your sanctification that you flee sexual immorality. It's dangerous, friends. It's dangerous. We're walking around with a, a log, a flame, holding it to our chest, thinking it's not going to burn us. Just be, be careful. And, and again, I'm out there in the pew with you, stepping on my own toes here. This is not me in judgment looking down on anyone. But I do want us to be aware that these are strong words against sexual immorality from the risen Lord. Flee sexual morality. Put it to death. The second idol that's repeated, sorry, I've got to speed up a little bit. The second idol that's repeated throughout Revelation 2 and 3 is idolatry. That more subtle and, and sneaky, maybe even more dangerous because of its subtlety. The things deep in our hearts that we prize and we worship, we cannot do without them. Oh. Idolatry is simply our heart's loves, our heart's sins that rule us. And they take root in our souls by our thinking about them, by our entertaining them, by our are meditating on them. It's the stuff we probably talk about, think about, that dominates our lives, that we're giving our time and energy to. These are, these are idols. Idols can be good things. Idols can be neutral things. Money and wealth, prosperity, good and neutral things. Just turned wicked because we made them ultimate. These idols could be made of wood or gold or hay, as often is the case when we read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. Or it could be stuff like this. Your status, being liked and loved by everyone. There's a song that says, approval that outshines the sun. Is that you? Sex, sexuality, your security, safety, control of everything. I got that one. Pleasure, money. 
that next thing. You're so busy in life that it's always moving on to the next thing, the next job, the next hobby. I'm going to start a new career now and just another one on top of another one. Next, next, next thing. Such that you're running at a pace that you haven't slowed down. You don't Sabbath with the Lord. What is your idol? I, I don't know all of the idols in your life, whatever the Spirit might be bringing to life, but I would encourage you to, to lean into those things. If the Spirit has brought anything to your mind, like this is my thing and I know it, get it out of the way. Because the problem with these idols is that they stop our ears from hearing. They are the things that, that harden our hearts to the sweetness of Jesus. That's why he's se- severe with his words. Get these idols out of the way because they make Jesus not look as beautiful as he is. And why would they? Because something else is on the throne of your heart. These idols woo us to a spiritual stupor. They put us to sleep like Sardis. They make us think that we're all put together like Laodicea, but really we're naked, pitiable, and poor. Idols cultivate laziness in our spiritual life because we're actually about this other thing. The sexual morality and this warning against idolatry, friends, is weighty for us because like I've mentioned already, they were the things that Jesus is saying, if you don't get rid of this, if you continue to lean into this compromise with the world, you will cease to be a church. And I don't know any other way to to get around this other than to pull us into the warning. Sexual immorality and idolatry, if we were to add a, an idolatry of prosperity and Laodicea, they only promise you pleasure. They only promise you security. They only promise love, but they're actually dead and poisonous to your soul. But the story doesn't end there. There's still good news. This is my third and final thing that I want you to see as we go to the table together. And that is the beauty of the risen Lord Jesus. We just got a little snippet of him in each of the letters. If you were listening carefully, the first line of all of these churches, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, and then it says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. It's just like one little snippet of Jesus. Oh, you know, just, just the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, Jesus. Each church gets this little hand-selected picture of Jesus for their context. If you want to see all of them put together, I encourage you to go back and listen to last Sunday's sermon where Roger walked us through all of these images of Christ because they're at the the end of chapter 1. Risen Jesus, and we walked through all of these, these beautiful symbols of who he is for us. But I want us to see that in these symbols of Christ, we're being given a picture of a beautiful man, a beautiful God, Jesus. He is beautiful, he is gracious, he is kind, and yet he is fierce. These are real warnings. He's merciful, he's all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, yet dangerous for those who do not repent. The good news of the gospel is that this Jesus was the lamb crucified for our sins and as our substitute, but he's also the one who came to life and is living now. This is the risen Lord as he is now. He is king. And he's on the throne reigning. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to make all things right. That one is your friend. That Jesus, that person is called our older brother. That king is the one who's about to eat with us. As we come to the table and by faith lay hold of him. 
Jesus is alive. I know you might have just heard Christian-y words right there. Okay, Jesus is alive. No, he's actually alive. He's in this room. He's talking to you and has been talking to you, and he's going to go with you. If you are in Jesus, he is with you, and he's for you, and he likes you, and he loves you. And he is indeed the one who has the words that are like a two-edged sword. He is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. He is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. He's the one who opens and no one shuts. He's the one who shuts and no one opens. And he's for you. And he's about to be with you as we come to the table. We do it every week, not just because we really like distributing bread and wine. We, we do it every week because it's Jesus with you. It's the risen Christ nourishing your souls, empowering your faith. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a table for you, for anyone trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. Anyone resting in him alone, come to the table and be nourished as you entrust yourself to the risen Lord Jesus. The way we do it at New City in a few moments after I pray, you'll be dismissed from to the outside of the room. You'll go to the back to receive your bread and red wine or white grape juice and return to your seats through the middle and we'll partake together in a few moments. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to come to the risen Lord Jesus who has warned us but who says come. Jesus, I pray You would use my words to encourage the hearts, the minds, and the souls of my brothers and sisters as Revelation 2 and 3 had strong words for us. I pray that you would allow us to see you, that we would resist our hardness of heart, resist our temptation to stop up our ears, and that we would do so by seeing you, Jesus, clearly. Be with us now. Nourish our faith as we entrust ourselves to you and come to the table. In Jesus' wonderful name, I pray.